0: Hey everybody! This is Andrew Wicklander, the founder of Ideal Project Group, and thanks for joining me on the second full episode of Project Idealism's podcast. So, real quick, the idea behind the show is that I interview somebody that is doing something, you know, cool, uh, different, interesting, unique, exciting, um, what have you—just someone that I think would be fun to talk to about what they're doing, and then see how we can um, we can. Learn, learn a few things from them and see how we can apply some of those lessons to the projects that we're working on. Uh, so in this episode, I speak with Daniel Rothenberg, and he's the Managing Director of International Projects uh, at DePaul University's uh, International Human Rights Law Institute, uh, which is part of their College of Law. And we discuss one project in particular which is the Iraq History Project, and he just walks through a bunch of fascinating details um, about the project. So uh, what follows is that interview with him uh, that I conducted, and then I just kind of wrap things up uh, at the end of the podcast and talk about some of the things that I will take away um, in particular and how I think um, some of those lessons can be applied to the projects that I'm working on. So thanks again for joining uh, joining me, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi everybody, this is Andrew withlander with the Project Idealism podcast, and I am here with Daniel Rothenberg, who is the Managing Director of International Projects for the International Human Rights Law Institute at DePaul University College of Law. So that is quite a mouthful, but Daniel, thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, Daniel is currently working on um, a number of projects over in Iraq for the, is it for the State Department, is that right?
1: No, no, for the International Human Rights Law Institute. We receive funding from different sources and we receive some funding from the State Department. We also receive funding from private foundations and sometimes from the United Nations and sometimes from uh, UK government running different rule of law and human rights projects in a uh, variety of locations around the world. And some of the projects are more research oriented and some of them are more service oriented. And I got into this particular job in a sort of roundabout fashion. Before I came here, I had worked um, at different universities, generally doing my own kind of research.
0: Okay, okay. And so, what are the what are the projects that you're working on right now at
1: um, at DePaul? So, we have our largest projects are in Iraq, as you mentioned, and so there we have an office. In fact, we've done a series of different projects uh, since 2004. And at our peak, we had about six, over 60 staff in the country okay. uh, working out of a central office in northern Iraq, and then people working all over the country. Now we've got about, I guess, 25 or so, and we just received a pretty large new grant of $4.8 million, so that's pretty big for us. And when all of those folks are on the ground, we will be up to about 50 people in the country.
0: Okay, and so the the main objective of the project that you're working on right now in, in Iraq and the one that you just that you mentioned is what?
1: Training Iraqi human rights NGOs to do high-quality uh, documentation analysis, sort of okay. modeled on the Human Rights Watch. And for,
0: for the listeners that may not know, NGO is non-governmental organization. Right, yes. so
1: organizations that are working all over the country, uh, in local communities, helping them learn how to understand the problems in their communities as human rights violations, understanding how to do professional documentation of those violations, and then presenting reports and advocacy plans. And we're working with groups that are looking at uh, classic violations of the state, like torture. Okay. We're working with groups that are working on honor killings and various kinds of groups.
0: So now um, let's let's sort of narrow it down just. For the, the sake of our the beginning of our conversation, um, to the Human Rights Violations Project in the, the 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 documentation of abuses and torture and that kind of stuff under Saddam Hussein's regime.
1: Well, we have we had a project. Uh, okay. We're still working on the analysis of it, but we completed the gathering, and that was a ah, okay. it's a project called the Iraq History Project, and it involves gathering and analyzing. Uh, first-person narratives of violations that occurred under the Ba'ath Party regime and dominated by Saddam Hussein from 1968 to 2003, as well as looking at those violations committed by a whole host of different parties from 2003 through 2008. So they're actually, you know, uh, they're they're somewhat distinct projects, the, the past violations and current violations, but we used a lot of the same staff and a more or less similar methodology.
0: Gotcha. So... How do you go about starting something that large? So I'm really interested to hear, you know, how just how you kick something like this off, and then how you communicate with everybody yeah. on an ongoing basis.
1: It's an excellent question. I mean, first of all, the, this project, the Iraq History Project, just to give a quick overview, through this project, which we ran for a couple of years, we gathered um, 8,911 first-person testimonies, which adds up to be about 55,000 pages of material, which makes this initiative one of the largest human rights documentation projects uh, in the world. Uh, It was modeled after truth commissions, and so we modeled some of the methodology on that. But your question about the project management side is I work for an institution that um, our international projects are wholly dependent on funding. And that means that there's a component of the projects that we implement that come from our ideas. right? And there's a component that comes from when those ideas receive funding. And then a little bit of an in-between space where we try to do things with the small amount of extra time or extra space or extra staff that we have that fits our interests but doesn't have express funding for that particular thing.
0: Okay, okay. So once you um, you have the funding for an initiative that you want to go after, um, I'm imagining that you there's you and maybe some people here in Chicago with you. Uh, you right. have some funding and then... And then what? Well,
1: for example, we literally signed uh, our, we received the final approval for a new project on Wednesday of this past week. Okay. So what do we do next? Well, because this project is in Iraq, where we already have an existing office and staff, it's substantially easier to implement than when we first begin in a new place, as you might imagine. Sure. Um, although I suppose it's, you know, the, the world of project management for international projects or international development projects is certainly distinct in some ways and probably similar in other ways to the kind of project management that managers deal with
0: right. all over the place right
1: the distinct parts are often fascinating and even comical uh and the parts that are the same are you know the same old right. stuff so let's talk yeah
0: so <laughs> let's talk about the fascinating and comical uh pieces of, no, the, no. of what you deal with you, you know. asked about electricity so, right right so
1: you know now we are we rent a uh, offices in a complex that has its own electricity but for a long time we did not Uh, and we had to rent an ordinary house in a neighborhood and we had to purchase a generator and we had to manage to fill that generator with diesel at a time when it was quite difficult to get diesel and we had to deal with the repairs and all of the uh, attendant issues Uh, and it's a you know as you Right. It puts you in the thick of a context where the kinds of things you take for granted, say, in the United States, are simply not always sure. available.
0: Sure. And so when you are in one of those situations, how are you communicating with the people that are doing the work? And in in, in the case of the, the Human Rights Project, you have yeah. people that are going around actually collecting pieces of data with paper, pencil, I'm assuming, right? And I mean, yeah. so what are the... I'm, I'm very I'm very interested in hearing how, how those, I guess, bits of information are collected, organized, gathered, and then reported back to your team here in Chicago so that you can analyze all of that data.
1: Well, one thing that has been sort of uh, a hallmark of our operations in Iraq, and in a lot of places, we also have a, a fair number of projects in Latin America, uh, but in Iraq, the, we're, we're very atypical for an international organization in that, for a long period of time, we used only we had only Iraqi staff, Okay. and we we made that decision for a variety of reasons. But in any case, that gets a little far afield. So you're right that one reason that we chose to work with an all Iraqi staff is linguistic skills. So one of the more comical there's a, there's a lot of a lot of strange incoherences out in the world of working in places like Iraq. So one of the classic types of incoherences that that. Was easy uh-huh. to witness. Is you'd have somebody doing work, say, an, uh, a gender rights specialist, or okay. a development specialist, or somebody working on, say, micro lending, or some kind of classic international development practice. And in the con- security context of, of a lot of Iraq, they would show up at a you know a widow's um, a gathering of widows or okay. a community center in an ordinary neighborhood in a convoy of armored uh, SUVs. You yeah, know, they look like what they look like. Right, right, And they, right. Ste- they step out of the car, and they, they they make sure that the area is secure. They've got their guns in their hands, pointed at different people, right. scanning the street. And there's several of them, and often there's a convoy to bring a single, say, gender specialist in. And then <laughs> the gender specialist pops <laughs> <Right>. out, <laughs> is quickly escorted to the home. and And the impact of that whole encounter is a strange one, as you might imagine. Sure. Another thing that we did is we tended not to spend a lot of time as foreigners in places that, that posed a great deal of danger. I mean, it's I don't criticize the use of private security contractors in in terms of... There are many parts of the country that have been and maybe continue to be pretty dangerous. Right. And it's not a safe thing to just go wandering around without security. Our approach was not... was. It isn't that we didn't work in those areas. We worked in those areas with Iraqis who were okay. from those areas okay. who operated using, I'm not sure if the right word is security protocols, they operated using the kinds of day-to-day micro decisions about security that okay. ordinary people do in their day-to-day business. So, right, right, So right. when we hired people to do interviews, we hired people who were using their own social networks to find interview subjects and their own social networks to determine their the level of security that was appropriate and we were involved with constant usually daily or every other day communication with them it turned out that that model allowed us to work in a lot of parts of the country where no other international organizations were working and certainly well, i'll take it back it allowed us to work in a way different than the way international organizations were working okay. and allows us to do certain kinds of things that international organizations at the time were not doing so and those and yeah. those
0: things are ours in large part specifically because of the way in which you went and decided that you weren't going to have foreigners going in to collect this information and you were leveraging the local people. I don't think you could population. safely
1: gather sensitive information about human rights violations from individuals by showing up with an armored convoy right. and having the interviewer go in under that context. right? I think that would both intimidate a lot of victims and I think it would potentially put those victims in a dangerous position that is counter to the goals sure. of the rights organization.
0: And so let's go ahead and talk about that the the structure that you touched upon briefly. So you have certain percentage of the population that you initially wanted to contact and ask them a number of questions about violations that they may have experienced. And then you you had to bring on a number of interviewers to actually conduct those um those interviews and the discussions I mean, with people. Yeah, we right? began with
1: we began by devising a methodology that had a sort of theoretical component okay. and then a practical component. So the theoretical component is we had a desire you know, the, the premise of the project the Iraq history project is to gather first hand testimonies of the experience of human rights violations. The idea being that a victim centered approach to documenting these violations provides a level of understanding as to what occurred that is distinct from other kinds of information and provides okay. a certain insight into what occurred. And it's, it, you know, this isn't really just our idea. This is an idea that's more or less been developed through other large-scale human rights data collection projects, particularly truth commissions, but there are a few other examples.
0: Sure. Okay.
1: So we started with a theoretical engagement and I happen to know a, a fair amount about truth commissions and this kind of stuff and I know some of the key players who've developed these kinds of methodologies. So you know, it wasn't like i came up with this idea cold in fact it, i came up with the idea because of my personal interest in the issue and then from there we had to implement this general concept and i was and we we didn't really know exactly what would and wouldn't work so there were a few ba- few ideas that we were facing one was your classic project management so the potential pool of victims that we could speak with from the past violations say from the time of the bad party we we're looking at um, you know a three decade long period during which time hundreds of thousands millions of people were directly affected by violations no one knows the full number of specific victims of torture say okay. or of massacres or of chemical weapons attacks etc but you were talking about an entire population that lived for decades under an extraordinarily repressive authoritarian regime within which many many people suffered a focused and horrific violations, and more than just those particular victims, was the way in which the victimization spread out among society through family members of, of direct victims, through communities, and through the whole society that lived under a state of constant and domineering surveillance. So, in other words, it's a very difficult and complicated set of issues to try to document, and we never expected that we would be able to document all of the issues at hand, we thought we would try to document as much as was reasonably possible okay. with the resources that, that we had.
0: Right, and so in your attempt when you when you started down this <coughs> down this road, and you began collecting the information about the violations, or I guess first you you began bringing on people to right. actually conduct the interviews. First, we developed right?
1: the methodology in a sort of general and abstract way. By that I mean we we had some basic precepts. We looked at the way in which uh, other people who'd managed similar projects had gone about some basic issues. We developed some. We we customized some special human rights software called MARDIS, okay. which is developed by a company named Benetech, and. Uh, the people who were who the sort of forces behind it I've known for a long time. They're relatively well-known players in the human rights field. Okay. And so we started a bunch of this kind of somewhat abstract work. And the next step was then to start hiring people. And we made a strategic decision. Right. And this is the part yeah. where I realize
0: I'm very naive, right? I'm sort of extremely interested in this particular piece, which is, you know, how do you so you're not just putting a job posting out. Like, hey, we're looking yeah, for people to help right. document uh, human rights violations, right? You know, it's uh, funny. I mean, post it on Craigslist and let us know, right? <laughs> yeah, actually, totally. how, do you, how are you bringing those resources onto a project like this?
1: Well, I wish I, had, I wish I knew the right answer to how to ensure that we could always hire the best people for our jobs. For right. our international posts, we actually do put them on those websites where people interested in this kind of work look, look, such okay. as reliefweb.org or idealist.org. For local staff in Iraq, of course, that is not the way to go about hiring people. I mean, one of the most important things in a place like Iraq, and particularly for a project that involves a high level of sensitivity for the information, is you want to hire, you want to maximize the degree to which you can ensure trust and, and, and security of the people that you hire, which is never fully possible, as you might imagine. Sure. But you do the best you can. And how do you do that? You don't put out postings. You hire people through networks okay. of trust. And you hire people with a profile that you're looking for. So we began that project. Um, we began interviews relatively close to our office. And through that process, we were able to sort of uh, test our methodo- our field methodology. Okay. And we were able to sort of suss out the degree to which the project kind of functioned. Which involved a process of interviewers going to the field, coming back with the material that we had trained them to gather, having that material then entered into a database by database entry people. Okay, and And this was
0: being entered in in in, in, in Iraq. Okay, yeah, we
1: do all of our work, you know, in in the local languages. Right. Okay, it's also always been our approach to working anywhere in the world that we try not to be telling other people what to do and deciding for them the right way to do things. So a lot of what we figured out, we figured so, out. So
0: not a lot of micromanaging once you're bringing people on and they're doing they're doing. The, the only thing difficult.
1: I micromanaged was the methodology because okay. I had a pretty clear sense of what I thought was the right way to, to do things. And we made adjustments to that methodology based on what sort of worked and didn't work, but we tried to have a great degree of coherence okay. about what we were telling our staff so that when they went out into the field we got, we, we had a kind of regularity of process. Right. Although I say that with the acknowledgement that I actually don't know what each interviewer did sure, when sure. they went out to speak with people and I think the real tr- part of the the beauty of the project and where the project was most successful was where interviewers figured out on their own the best way to elicit the most compelling stories from the people they interviewed and we have absolutely extraordinary stories. Um, and later when we transferred our methodology to current violations, which are in some ways far more complex to document okay. um, we also got extraordinary stories of all kinds and, you know.
0: So now once you've, once you've gathered all of this information and you've entered it into your, your systems and your databases. Well it's more complicated than that so, okay. <laughs> so we began in
1: the north In the north it was not so complicated in the sense that we really didn't face a serious, any, any major security problems right. We had Kurds interviewing Kurds and, and and there's an openness to discussing the violations that the prior regime committed against Kurds because it's a key component to the struggle for a, a coherent Kurdish contemporary identity, which is to say a victim identity in the face of a domineering state. And so we knew that we would have find a lot of people willing to talk because the, the social cost of talking about past violations is substantially lower okay. in Kurdistan than other areas. That was on purpose. We knew that, and we found that. We found that... We were had no problem gathering all kinds of testimonies from people, and if anything, the problem that we encountered was simply an inadequate resources to document the extraordinary number of cases, the extraordinary diversity of cases, et cetera. so right. about five months into doing that work, during which time we also learned what we learned which interviewers really were good we learned something about the process of how to manage the information etc okay we then began our work in the in the center and south of the country with the understanding that our interviewers were going to be taking quite substantial risks or or actually at least we understood that the context in which they were working presented risks okay we hoped that they were not taking big risks and so we recruited a group of, tra- of interviewe- interviewers excuse me from And we tried to, our model, a key element of our methodology was always to have the same kind of people as interviewers as the interviewees we were seeking to contact. Okay. So we would have Marsh Arab women interviewing Marsh Arab women. We would have... Sunnis in Baghdad interviewing other Sunnis in Baghdad and we in general tried to base use uh, recruit interviewers who play off their own social networks to get the most diverse kinds of stories uh, but we faced okay. big problems because we gathered these interviews during a period of time when violence was extraordinary in the country and there were areas in the country where we were unable to gather material such as Anbar province
0: Okay. Uh, um,
1: but, but in any case I can go on and on about this but the bottom line is we first started we recruited a group of interviewers we trained them in the same methodology that we've been using in the north and we sort of sent them out or they right. went back to their communities and began doing interviews and we and so they uh, were
0: interviewing people that, um, that that they knew of or that were like you said that were in their discussion. networks or friends or friends or so so I mean you know so we somebody's encouraged inter- them
1: to use social networks which is sort of a social science concept that broadly refers to the, way, the, the ways in which individuals are embedded in larger social systems. And if a person is a member of a tribe, particularly if they are linked to, say, a more empowered uh, element of the tribe, as, as some of our interviewers were, they could use those tribal links to find to put the word out that they were trying to find some folks to interview. And, okay. and mm-hmm. that gives you a great buy-in when you come into a place because you are so-and-so's cousin or you are so-and-so's daughter or so-and-so's son the way in which you walk into that environment is completely different particularly in a place like Iraq than it would be if you would say just knocked on their door randomly the way that right and so we found that with our best interviewers part of their skill as interviewers was That's to true. learn how to maximize their social context to get to identify people to interview and then to conduct really good interviews and you know the the, the quality of the material that we gathered and by quality i mean the sort of depth of personal expression is really a pretty amazing thing to have found uh, in this right. work, and we we found that in ways that were surprising. For example, we have one of the largest databases of testimonies on rape, and we got some of we received some of the most compelling and detailed accounts from some of the groups that you would think would be the least likely to come forward with that kind of information, such as very conservative uh, women from very conservative environments, where admitting to that sort of experience could be devastating to your social status okay, and to your, and to all sorts of aspects of your life. And, and yet, you know, we've discovered in this project, which is something that one finds in these kind of projects all around the world, is that there's a driving interest on the part of victims to tell their stories. When you create an environment that's comfortable for victims to speak, you can receive extraordinary accounts of what occurred.
0: So now you're gathering these intensely personal and emotional and Tragic encounters of individuals, and then they're going into a computer system. At the end of the day, right? You know, how do you capture the importance and the criticality and the emotion and the and the and the, and the everything that that went into the experience? And, and and you're you're obviously you're gathering this data in such a way that y- you're going to collect information that's extremely personal. Right? Yeah, no, and so, how do you how do you get it into a system, and then get it out of that system and still share the same, I guess, depth of emotion.
1: Well, I mean, there's a project management component and there's a methodological component of that question. So the methodological component is we we created a sort of intricate system to manage this information, uh, which I can go into, but basically we used a super secure database to store all the information. We constructed a system with a high degree of security for names, although we had elements of the project management that were incredibly complicated. For example... Most of our interviewers at that period of time did not have access to the Internet, which this was a 2006, 2007. There were a lot of problems with electricity. Many people didn't have personal computers in their homes. It's changing. It's, a, right. it's, it's growing. But, you know, we basically had to move the material that we gathered in paper form from around the country safely to our office in the north of the country. And to do that, we created a fairly complicated I say, system. You did of couriers, that? How? <laughs> right? Well, we did it again through trusted networks. Okay. And we had some complicated. This was during a time period when there were checkpoints everywhere. And mm-hmm. so our couriers were periodically stopped at checkpoints. And we had to construct a mechanism to allow, to minimize the possible risk to every member of our project and to maximize the, 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 possi- the, the movement of the information. And I can tell you that. In the whole time that we were working, we had over, in the total number, we probably had about 100 interviewers at different times. Okay. You know, about about 60 staff at one given time, but we had different people come and go for a variety of reasons. And we also had like you know, couriers making bi-weekly trips all over the country, gathering material with a system that involved like different nodes where they would pick material. It was pretty complicated. Sure. And so we during this period of time, at no point did we have any serious compromise of information. And we had no cases, fortunately, in which any staff person was harmed in any way. We had people stop at checkpoints, and we had to have a system to talk them through them, those checkpoints. We always did. So when people were traveling for our project and moving material back and forth, they always had a story about what they were doing. And their story was no different than the kind of story that people ordinarily had. And if they got stopped, they would call our security director, who was there. "Quote unquote boss," and he would talk to the people at the checkpoint, and he would talk them through it, and he would make up a story okay. about how what was going on. They were doing some kind of work for some sort of thing. Right. He'd never mention a connection to the United States, as you might imagine. He wouldn't mention a connection to a human rights documentation project, as you might imagine. Right, right. And uh, this was an effective system. Okay, but yeah. as you you know, when you work in places that are like Iraq during this time period, or any number of the. Of of the places that humanitarian assistance projects work. You are always facing a context where you have to be, uh, be improvisational and you have to have all kinds of side approaches and side stories.
0: As you say, fortunately, you didn't run into any issues. But yeah. had, had somebody run into an issue... When they were going over, going through a checkpoint, and well, they did run into issues. One of the people, okay, so one of the people finds out that they're working on a human rights project associated with, you know, some some university in the United States. What is the, I mean, what is the da- The true danger that these well, people were facing by they, doing their, their, their that's their, not something. Their job. I
1: mean, the, Iraq during this period of time it was just a very, very dangerous country. People were being kidnapped every day. People were being killed every day for all kinds of things, including essentially nothing right. other than their name. You had checkpoints where people were pulled over and they would look at your cell phone. They'd grab your cell phone from you and look at your cell phone and see if your cell phone had Shia names in it. And if it had Shia names in it, you could be killed for that alone. So the way in which you, you manage anything that occurs in that kind of context uh, and, and I just it could and for the other checkpoint it would be Sunni names excuse me I, I don't mean to sure my point is that where you had these militias operating the level of potential violence for the kinds of things that were not particularly how can I say this like there was an enormous level of constant threat for most Iraqis in many regions of the country right nothing we could do could could actually offset that context. Okay. Uh, this is the reason why foreigners working in, in Iraq would have extremely complicated and extraordinarily costly security procedures. It's not because they were, I think, overstating the level of risk, necessarily. It's that the level of risk really was quite high, and it was enormously high for foreigners. Okay. The level of risk for Iraqis was also high, but at the same time as, as the situation was as complex as it was, you had Iraqis just doing regular things every day, managing their risk the way that they managed them. At the same, On the one hand, you had Iraqis who all kinds of terrible things happened to them. On the other hand, you had Iraqis who went about their business as best as they could. My only point about all this is if you're going to be working, if you choose to work in a place that has those risks, you have... the the appropriate mechanism is to evaluate those risks at the level that they occur and to work with people in a way that is as upfront and honest as possible. So we always place security at the highest priority for our staff. And we always told people that if there's any sense you have that you are under any risk that makes you uncomfortable, do not do the work. And in some cases, we ended up stopping our interviewing process in those places that became more violent. In other cases, we had nobody operating in places we would like to have worked, but it just okay. wasn't reasonable to work there. Okay. So, I mean, my point about the security issue is that we were involved in a constant set of micro-decisions. And when I say we, primary decision-makers were the Iraqis themselves evaluating their own circumstance the way they did in in their ordinary lives anyhow. And then we had some particularly savvy security people who were very... They might not be savvy in the way that foreign security experts are. In fact, I would say they probably wouldn't be. And and their capacity (laughs) to do the kinds of things foreign security experts are good at would be lower. But their capacity to assess the -the on-the-ground situation and, say, talk somebody through a checkpoint was so so much greater that it turns out that we were able to establish procedures that worked. And the proof is that they just actually worked. So now you've Unfortunately that's not our situation anymore. Our current projects do not pose these levels of complexity. Okay. Okay. You know, to work with law schools is really nowhere near as complex procedurally or in a security sense.
0: So now we fast forward a year or two years and you've you've collected this data. You're, you've you put it into your systems. You're in the process of analyzing it right now.
1: And we hope the analysis, there's so much material, we hope it will go on for many, many years. Okay. Not just by us.
0: And so, in your mind, the, the ultimate outcome of collecting this data is what? And is there ever truly an end to this project if you... Um, if we if we call it that, well, there's an end or to is our
1: project, but I don't think there's an end to the struggle to document violations or to right. protect and defend human rights.
0: But yeah. so for for the specific pieces of data that you 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 collected in in Iraq, right? Right. Um, you mentioned that you're analyzing that data. In your what is what what is going to be the ultimate output for your yeah. team and your project? Well, the project
1: has three goals. It has a documentary goal, which is which is that we believe that there is a profound and real value to documenting violations, to providing victims with the opportunity to tell their stories. Okay. For that purpose alone, simply to document that material and then to make portions of those material that material available for review by the Iraqi people and by others. Okay. Uh, and that involves cleaning the material up from identifying information so that a story about torture uh, cannot be associated with that particular person. Okay. So that's one element. Another element is analysis. We've gathered so many testimonies that we can say things about patterns of violations that nobody has necessarily been able to say in the past, certainly not in the same way. So we can show patterns of violations uh, uh, during the prior regime as well as patterns of violations you know, after the U.S.-led invasion of 2003. And then the third piece is a... Um, policy piece, which is we will be presenting a series of recommendations, both specific and sort of more general to the key players who have something to say about policy in Iraq. Okay. That is the international community, and then probably with even more significance, the Iraqi government. Okay, um, And you know we won't be able to, of course, control the impact of any of this work, say our policy recommendations, on the creation of actual policies but it, we will be able to present policy recommendations that are grounded in data in a way that others would, that, that it would be impossible to have done without the data. And, and just to add one thing, we, I hope that the project, I would like to clean up the material and actually make it available publicly online or at least available in some sort of open archive in Iraq so that the future analysis of this work is not in our hands or based on, on our capacities which frankly are quite limited Right. Um, but are actually open to whomever in a sort of more open-ended scholarly way but for us to do that we have to make sure that we're uh, cleaning the data that we present publicly so that there can't be any association with the actual people who've entrusted us with their stories and that that's not impossible to do but it takes a certain amount of work and since right. funding has right. ended we actually so it's can't s- do all of that work Sure. Yeah. so is,
0: is it fair to say that you now that you have done the collection and that you've organized it and sort of secured it against yeah. being able to find out you know, what individuals told specific things about their violations, that, that you want that information to be free so other people can evaluate it and, and, yeah, and, and I'm, analyze it. I'm generally
1: it. a believer that, that part of the point of doing this kind of work, we know in our project and from other similar kinds of projects that victims have... Not all victims, but enough victims in the context of a particular conflict have a desire to have their story told. It's not for us to try to understand or evaluate or judge that desire, but it's something one sees around the world. If you provide people with a safe context in which to tell their story, and you present them with a simple claim that you will do your best to listen to them and do your best to respect their story and you will not be promising them any express benefit from this engagement uh, one, one person might think well that means you won't find a lot of response in fact it's just the opposite there's a deep desire and I don't know exactly what drives this but there's a deep desire that we see around the world that people want to tell their stories and they want to be heard and we're talking about people who are not used to being listened to we're not talking about right. political figures uh, who may have a whole other much more sort of Uh, self-censored, careful, criticized approach to their storytelling, you find from people that that there's something going on in the psychology of all of this that plays positively for, I think, a general demand for truth. Now, coupled with that is the fact that we don't know, we can't test the veracity of all of the statements that we receive. We have over 4,000 testimonies of torture under the prior regime, and by collating them, by putting them together and analyzing them, The patterns that emerge must be true in that it's unlikely four thousand people got together and (laughs) came up with the same story and some of the things that we learn from that kind of analysis are quite revealing both for the international community and for iraqis but to respond to your point about about the openness i think that it is somewhat incumbent upon us to try to be as respectful as possible of the people who have told us their stories but also to try to make as widely available as is reasonably possible the material that's been gathered, even if we know that some people will you know, use that material in a way that we might not think is responsible. But we have a very small amount of the material we've gathered that is available for, for review, and we'll have it up online you know, relatively soon. Okay. But we only have, in the end of the 8,911 testimonies, we probably have cleaned up and translated into Arabic, English, and Kurdish no more than say 250 or so testimonies, which is a okay. Okay, is a, is a, is a tiny percentage. And so this
0: will, am. and but your goal is to to have all 8,911 uh, well, cleaned up, mm, or or no?
1: I don't think that will happen. Okay. I think just because the time and and resources to do that would be more than I think we would be likely to raise. So I would say if we could if we could get a thousand or two thousand that would cover the ground fairly well i'm not averse to the full number it's just that you know it's this classic story of trying to manage what is what you think you're likely to be able to do right Uh, i think we'll probably raise some money for this but i doubt it will cover the full okay it's 55,000 pages of material so right right. so to review all of that carefully is just it's just a lot of work right i just don't think anyone's going to give us enough money to make that happen just simply is not that easy to manage any of this stuff. And within the management there's always things going wrong. Right. And right. it is always costly in one way or another, resources, but, time and so. Yeah,
0: you've, so you've so you've collected you've collected this enormous amount of data and you you, you touched on the, the, the fact that there's value just from documenting it. Doing the analysis of that data and you're, if you were to analyze all eight thousand nine hundred and eleven yeah, what would be the true. ideal end result? If you were to analyze all, well, I, would it be? You a, know,
1: I don't think you know. There's elements of a project of human rights. There's elements of any project, and it's certainly true in projects like this that you have to distinguish between those elements that you have some control over and those elements that are are by definition beyond your control. I've always thought that you know we're we're a foreign organization working in a country that I feel this very much personally. Right? It's not my country. I don't even speak any of the dominant languages of the country. Our staff do. That's good. And our staff tend to be Iraqis. But that said, I don't think that one, I think in general, in international projects, international development projects, rule of law and human rights projects, these projects would be better if there was less, if there was a greater humility as to the reasonableness of what one can do and what one should do. So
0: I know we could go on for probably another hour, but we uh, we do need to wrap up. Daniel is also the author of a book, With These Hands, uh, which documents the world of um, migrant farm workers in the United States and, and provides um, a context of the, the worldview through through
1: their eyes. And that's so. somewhat similar to some of this Iraq work in that it's it has a similar ideology, which is that... Uh, that it's a useful way to understand what's occurring in a place by speaking to people about their own personal life stories, which is something that we've done a lot of in Iraq. Right. And elsewhere, actually. I mean, I, I, we didn't talk about any of our work in Latin America, but I spent a fair amount of time doing that. And in a um, subsequent conversation, maybe we will talk Yeah, about that. well, we
0: will. We, I know I, I, got, I guess I got kind of hung up on the, uh, the the Iraq project. And we and we should
1: talk about Afghanistan another time. That's I know. A, that I, place I, is... That, now, there, if one wants to talk about management questions, <laughs> in a way, the irony is that Iraq is a lot more like the U.S. in many respects, and Afghanistan is really not. And and I think as we increase are by our I mean the U.S. government's presence in that country, it, it, those clashes are likely to to come to the fore.
0: Right. Well, I can tell you that we would uh, love to have you back on um your the work that you do is is fascinating and i feel at the same time both uh more intelligent and less intelligent after having spoken with you for for a little over an hour so i i appreciate uh the time that you've given us and we wish you the best of luck with all the projects that you working on Hey everyone, this is Andrew again and I just wanted to wrap this podcast up with some of my thoughts from the uh, my discussion with Daniel about the projects that he's been working on So, I think the first thing that needs to be pointed out is you know, just taking a moment to understand how easy most of our projects are relative to some of the things that Daniel was talking about, right? We're not going through security checkpoints uh, we are generally uh, part of a safe working environment. We're not worried about, you know, losing uh, a family member because of the projects that we're working on. And and I point that out, and I and I, I guess I I state that, and I, even though it's so obvious, because it's really important. I mean. If if Daniel and his team of people can can go through that project and can collect all of those stories and move that information physically, you know through security checkpoints, then we can do the projects that we're working on. We can get you know we can uh, we can deal with whatever it is that we need to deal with that might be getting in the way of us completing the thing that it is we're working on, right? So for me, moving forward, I'm just going to be thinking to myself, you know, I'm not carrying um, a bunch of information through a security checkpoint in the middle of a war zone, and that actually makes my job kind of easy. Um, so the second thing that I wanted to talk about real quick is that, that Daniel mentioned context a lot. Uh, he he. At a variety of times, talked about the context of the war zone and the security uh, that they had to deal with, and the context of uh, you know some some an aid worker coming and talking to an Iraqi citizen, but having to do so under the uh, the protection of armored vehicles and how that changes things and and all that kind of stuff. And so you know, I, it's a big lesson. Even though it's something that we talk about a lot and we keep we keep in our minds, I think it was it's really important. Is the how everything that uh, that Daniel was working on and his team was working on? You know, they were aware uh, of the context within which they were working, um, and they also understood if they created a certain context when they were trying to get. Um, you know some of these stories, and hear some of the stories from people that that was going to impact uh, their actual result of their work, and so they had to be aware of not only the context that they were in, but the context that they were creating. So, uh, and I guess the the, the the last thing I wanted to mention is from both a uh, a hiring standpoint and an interview standpoint when when Daniel was talking about bringing interviewers onto their team and then when those interviewers were actually conducting uh, their interviews with victims uh, the importance of their individual social networks and their uh, their immediate tribes and family members and that kind of stuff and I think that there's it's a really important reminder that you know, in in an age where, uh, you know, we can be supposedly connected to anybody. That you know, it's important for us to just to know who our our trusted friends are, who our our trusted networks of people are, who are the people that are really our you know our fans, if you will, or uh, the people that would. Would go out and um, go out on a limb and help us if we had a new idea that we wanted to try, or the people that are going to be more likely to support something that we want to do, as opposed to um, having the first reaction of, of being against it. And you know, a lot of times these these trusted individuals, if you will, or our own you know personal um, our own personal tribes. Uh, they're really important f- to us individually but also for the things that we want to get done in ways that we might not even be aware of at the present time um, and so for me it's just I don't know it's kind of a it's, it's kind of a, a reminder of how it's very good to be you know aware of the people that are in your community and, you know, the communities that you're a part of and making sure that we're, you know, that we're giving back to those communities uh, because in return, they're giving us so much. So I think those are the three main thoughts that I would like to leave the podcast with today. And uh, again, thank you for um, for checking us out. I really appreciate it and we will be talking to you in the next episode thank you very much